Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And we're going to talk about a collection. We don't do this often. We, we normally right. stick to one thing. We're going to talk about a collection of people today. There are so many amazing and heroic stories of people who risk their own lives and the lives of their families and friends to protect Jews and other people who were at risk before and during the Holocaust. Uh, Yad Vashem honors people with the title of Righteous Among the Nations on behalf of Israel. And these are non-Jews who risked their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust. And as of January 1st, 2013, which was the most recent date I could find, 24,811 people had been awarded this title. And some of these people are quite well known today. Uh, people like Oscar Schindler, who we know about because of the film Schindler's List, uh, you know, had deep pockets and were well connected and they used their money in their bureaucracy to protect people. Schindler, for example, is credited with saving 1,200 Jews. There were also diplomats who used their roles and their clout to illegally secure visas and passports for people. A couple of examples are Louis Martins de Souza Dantas from Brazil and Aristide de Souza Mendes from Portugal. And they were both working from France when they did this. And then there are the people who sheltered individual people and families. And one of the most famous being Meep Gis, who was one of the people who helped shelter Anne Frank and her family, and who also found and saved Anne's diary, which of course became a really important document. In the town of Newland, Netherlands, every household sheltered at least one Jew, and that was so that no one in the community would be able to betray anyone else. Like they kind of took the approach of they were all in it together. Right. Uh, to, to betray anyone else in the community was to betray oneself. Uh, a few rescuers, some of them who have also been named Righteous Among the Nations, turned to really just surprisingly ingenious or unexpected or daring plans to save other people. And for a number of reasons, there's not a lot of biographical or scholarly information for a lot of them, at least not enough to be able to vote, to devote one whole episode to just one of them. But these stories are so incredible and they reveal so much about the links that some people will go to to protect other human beings that we didn't want to overlook them. So we've gathered a few into one episode today. Uh, and we're going to start with one that requires a little bit of a grain of salt, uh, because this story has become a little bit inflated through the years and retellings. Charles Coward was a British sergeant major uh, held at a POW camp near Auschwitz, Monowitz, also called Auschwitz III. And his experience was later made into a book called The Password is Courage, which in turn was made into a film. So you can see how facts might get a little... Uh, Right. Altered and nebulous along the way in those retellings. Yeah, there was the passage of time and the fact that there was, there was the dramatization yeah. element involved. And some of that story really has come under some scrutiny over the years. So what we are sticking to is the most conservative version for the part for which he was named as Righteous Among the, among the Nations on February 16th, 1965. Uh, and that's the most substantiated of the greater part of his story. And this was a rescue through body swapping. So Charles and the other POWs would get aid packages from the International Red Cross, which would include such valuable items as chocolate and cigarettes. He hoarded these and he convinced the other POWs to part with theirs also. And then he used them as currency. 
He would trade them with a German who was responsible for disposing of bodies from the neighboring construction site. And the bodies are actually what Charles was after. He claimed they were part of a practical joke, but he was really using them as stand-ins for escaping Jews. So the Jews would be marched from the the camp to a synthetic rubber works, where they were worked to exhaustion. And sometimes they would die there or uh, en route back to the camp as a result of being so overworked and malnourished and, and poorly treated. So with the help of sympathetic guards and the other POWs, Charles would have two or three bodies staged along the the route that they were marching to get to and from the rubber works. And then a matching number of Jewish prisoners who Charles had identified would slip away during the march back. Jews were counted coming and going to prevent just such an escape. But the body of anyone who died along the way had to be returned to Auschwitz and counted as well. And the bodies would then be tallied along with the Jewish prisoners. So no one would be accounted as missing. So this was really an ingenious little math plot. Yeah, to to make sure that the total number added up at the end. Uh, The exact number of people that were saved using this little body swap uh, is a little bit unclear at this point. Um, and Charles himself is not around any longer to discuss about it. He died in 1976. And then the next one we're going to talk about is Dr. Eugene Lazowski. Yes, he was a doctor and a soldier in the Polish army. And he faked an outbreak of epidemic typhus in Roswadow in southeast Poland to save Jews and the Polish people who were living there. He had been sent there to work for the Polish Red Cross after Germany invaded Poland in 1939. His friend and medical colleague, Stanislaw Matulowicz, discovered that if he injected someone with killed typhus bacteria, that person would then test positive to the disease without actually being infected. Dr. Lazowski ran with this knowledge, repeating the process on other people in Roswadow. If Jewish people were discovered to have typhus, they would have been just killed as a disease control measure. So what he did was he injected the non-Jews who were uh, living in the area, and then he sent their supposedly contaminated blood to German labs to be tested. And he carefully metered out the number of infections, the, these faux infections, to mimic uh, what would be a very natural and organic start of a typhus epidemic. German officials, uh, fearing the disease, wound up quarantining the entire area, and it was home to about 8,000 people. So he's credited with saving the Jews who lived there from concentration camps and everyone else from being sent into forced labor. In addition to orchestrating this outbreak, he also provided medical care to the Jews who were living in the Roswadow ghetto under the cover of night, which is something that he would have been punished for doing if he had ever been caught. Uh, and Dr. Lazowski immigrated to Chicago after the war, and he ended up living in Eugene, Oregon, where he died on December 16th of 2006. We have another medical uh, intervention as our, as our next story. This is Ernst Trier-Morch, and he was an anesthesiologist living in Denmark. At the time, the Danish resistance was smuggling Jews under the false bottoms of fishing boats. So what they would do is they would row far enough away from land that they wouldn't be seen, and then they would transfer their human cargo to Swedish ships who would then take them the rest of the way to Sweden. And then the Gestapo started using dogs to try to sniff out stowaways. Yeah, they had gotten wind of what was going on and, and started bringing in the dogs to try to put a stop to it. Working with a pharmacist named Olaf Hubner, 
Dr. Mork came up with this mixture of cocaine and dried rabbit's blood that would rob the dogs of their ability to smell. It basically acted like a local anesthetic on the dogs' noses and tongues. And because of the rabbit blood, they would eagerly lick it all up and sniff it. So they worked out the kinks using Olaf's Cocker Spaniel as a test subject, which I find a little charming. I'm imagining this Cocker Spaniel just being uh, sniffing around, temporarily robbed of its sense of smell, and then to come back to perfect the uh, the process. Yeah. It also suggests that since they were doing it on a pet, it was not harmful to the dogs. Right. So I always love that. Uh, and then they would sprinkle this powder that they had developed onto the decks of the boats. So the Gestapo's dogs would come aboard and they'd sniff and lick at the powder eagerly. And they would temporarily have their senses deadened. Uh, and it would conceal then that there was anyone hidden on the boat. They were useless to sniff out the bodies at that point. Yeah. So this allowed the resistance to keep doing what it had been doing uh, and and carry on with getting people out of the area uh, without so much fear of discovery. Dr. Mork died on January 13th, 1996. And now back to our topic at hand. Yes. The next person on our list is Irene Gutt Opdyke. Uh, she was then just Irene Gutt, and she hid 12 Jews at a villa where she was working as a housekeeper. The trick here is that the villa actually belonged to German Major Eduard Rugemer. She was only 17 years old at the start of World War II, and she was studying nursing when Germany invaded Poland. She fled the invasion, but she was captured by Russian soldiers who raped her. She wound up hospitalized after the attack, and once she recovered, she was put to work in a factory. And when she fell ill, uh, Major Rugemer took pity on her and moved her into a job working at a club for German soldiers. And there, she was the supervisor of 12 Jews who were working in the laundry service. Major Rugemer later made her the housekeeper at his own villa. And after hearing that the camp where the Jews were living was going to be liquidated, Irene found places to hide them at the villa. Some of them lived in a cellar under the gazebo, and some lived in a laundry room. And some of the women that she was hiding would occasionally help her with the cleaning while Major Rugemer was away. And eight months into this whole charade, he returned home early one day and discovered them. This would have been inexcusable for an officer to learn that his home had been used to shelter Jews. And it would have caused irreparable harm to his career if he had confessed to it. But Irene further ensured his silence by becoming his mistress. So in addition to keeping these 12 people safe, she also helped smuggle other Jews into the forest so that they could make an escape. And she smuggled food into the ghetto for them as well. She really, like, she was doing a lot of different things to help the cause. Yeah. In 1944, Irene and the 12 people she'd been hiding escaped into the forest themselves, and they hid there until Russia invaded Poland. In 1948, she immigrated to the United States, and she wrote and published a memoir called In My Hands, Memories of a Holocaust Rescuer. She was honored as one of the righteous among the nations on July 8th of 1982. She died in 2003 at the age of 85. And this last person we're going to talk about is one that we have gotten several requests to talk about after a a blog post that is filtered around the Internet lately. And that's Irina Sundler, who rescued about 2,500 children from the Warsaw Ghetto using suitcases, trunks, sacks and piles of garbage to hide them. She was born in Warsaw in 1910, and her father was a doctor. 
She later said that when she was seven, her father had told her, if you see someone drowning, you must try to save him, even if you cannot swim. And it was this attitude that led her into a life of service, including her work as a social worker before the start of the war. When the Germans began moving Jews into the Warsaw Ghetto, she started by smuggling food and medicine into the area. She would forge papers using Polish names so she could secure food and medical aid, and then she would distribute it among the Jews. When the ghetto was locked down, she got a nurse's uniform and a permit to inspect sanitary conditions, which let her move in and out of the area more freely. In 1942, Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto began to be removed to the Treblinka extermination camp. And while some of the other camps during the Holocaust housed prisoners who were forced into labor, the main purpose of Treblinka was really just execution. Jews and other people the Nazis wanted to exterminate would be brought in and told they were there to be resettled. But then they would be led directly into gas chambers and killed. At this point, Irina began to work with Zagoda, the Council for Aid to Jews, which had been formed by the Polish government in exile, which at that point was operating from London. She used the code name, the code name Jolanta. Zagoda provided Irina with money and forged documents, and sometimes they would also learn of which buildings in the ghetto were being emptied the next day. And Irina would go to those first. She would encourage Jewish parents to let her take their children away so that she could place them with Christian families or take them to a convent or to the family of Mary Orphanage in Warsaw. Parents were naturally very reluctant to part with their children. Many of them wanted to know for sure that if they gave up their children, their children would survive. But there really wasn't any guarantee that they would even make it out of the ghetto without being caught. What was much more certain was that if they were taken to Treblinka, they would die. And there were also matters of faith to consider. These children would need to learn Christian stories and prayers to be able to maintain their disguise and blend in in Christian families. And parents were actually worried that they would be drawn away from their existing culture and beliefs. So a lot of parents really believed the sort of charade that Treblinka was actually a resettlement camp. Irina really had to work to convince them that they were being sent there to die and that their children's only hope of survival was to be moved elsewhere. One piece of reassurance that Irina was able to give these families is that she would keep up with the real names of their children so that later on families could potentially be reunited. She wrote the children's real names and new names on pieces of paper and she would seal them into jars and bottles. And then she buried them under an apple tree that belonged to her friend Janina Grabowska. She used all kinds of tactics to smuggle children out of the ghetto once parents had agreed to let her do it. Children who were very sick or who could convincingly look very sick could just be taken out in an ambulance. Or uh, if they couldn't really pass for being ill, they could just hide under the stretchers that were being used to transport other children. Uh, Babies were given sedating drugs to keep them quiet, and they were sometimes smuggled out in suitcases and hidden among cargo in carts and trucks. Children also left the ghetto in garbage trucks, produce sacks, trunks, basically anything that a child could fit into and could be be taken out. Carried away in. Right. Unfortunately, Irina was discovered for all of these uh, activities, and she was arrested on October 20th of 1943. She was imprisoned, she was tortured, and she was sentenced to execution. Her own method of escape was a little like what her own rescue work had been. Uh, Zagoda bribed a guard who kept her name on the list of executed prisoners, but he instead released her. She was given false identification papers, and she stayed in hiding for the rest of the war. 
The damage to her legs from the torture and beatings that she received in prison affected her ability to walk for the rest of her life. After the war, true to her word, she dug up the jars and started trying to reunite children with their families. But unfortunately, almost all of the children's families had in fact died in Treblinka. She was named one of the Righteous Among the Nations on October 19, 1965. In 1999, students at a Kansas high school wrote Life in a Jar to publicize Irina's life after they read about her in an article in U.S. News and World Report. In 2003, she was awarded the Jan Karski Award for Valor and Compassion from the American Center of Polish Culture. She wasn't healthy enough at that point to travel, so one of the children she rescued accepted it on her behalf. And Irina died in 2008. There are people who call her the female Schindler, but it really seems to me just as accurate to call Schindler the male Schindler based on the numbers of people yeah. that each of them saved. Yeah, he's just got the uh, bigger billing culturally, so. Yeah, having having had a, a giant motion picture made about a person <laughs> does sim- totally solidify them into the public consciousness. Yeah, it could certainly still happen. Yeah, there are lots and lots of other really amazing stories of of uh, people who, rather than being anywhere on the spectrum between complicit and actively harming other people, uh, act really just did a lot to to try to save other people and to protect other human beings during the Holocaust. Uh, you can read lots and lots of them at the Righteous Among the Nations uh, website, which we will link to from our show notes. So, Tracy, yes. do you have a little bit of listener mail for us? I do. This is from Eric. And Eric says, hello, Holly and Tracy. First of all, I want to thank you for this podcast. I can't tell you how many long runs it has gotten me through. I just listened to your show about New England vampires, and I thought I might add a bit of information. I grew up in Exeter, Rhode Island, home of the Lena Mercy Brown vampire legend. Her grave can still be seen at the Chestnut Hill Cemetery just off Route 102. If you visit today or even look for a picture of the stone online, you'll see a strange black band of metal around its base. For a while, my father worked as a volunteer caretaker for the cemetery, where much of our family is buried. And in addition to keeping the grounds looking tidy, he occasionally had to deal with vandalism. One day I came home from school to discover that Mercy Brown's headstone was sitting in our shed. Some kids had knocked it over, so my father took it upon himself to fix it good. Never one for half measures, he welded the metal band and attached support bar, bracing these against an extra block of concrete. Whenever I hear the story of Mercy Brown, I think about my dad, the unsung hero of keeping her gravesite sturdy, if strange looking, for people to come and see. Thought you might like the inside scoop. Thanks again. I do indeed like I having the inside scoop. Thank you so much, Eric. And I also, so we get a lot of people who tell us that they listen to our podcast. While running, yeah, I always find that the most immensely flattering thing because when I run, I have to have music on, and then also Zombies Run has to be on, and then also preferably there's a TV in front of me <laughs> on the treadmill that has a TV show I'm actually interested in. Like I have to have all that stimulus happening yeah. at the same time, or else I get bored and quit. Uh, and so the people who find the podcast enough to keep them running, thank you for telling us so. I know I feel like we should run a metronome so we stay on some sort of pace. But- I do. That would be terrible. <laughs> I'd, uh, we could see, we could try that one time and see if anyone notices. I too have to, I minimum have to have music. Yeah, I, I have to just have as as much assaulting my senses as possible, or else I'm super bored and just like I'm just gonna get off here now. 
So, if you would like to write to us about this or any other topic, you can. We are at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff and on Twitter at mistinhistory. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we have a pin board on Pinterest. If you would like to learn a little more about some of what we talked about today, you can come to our website, search the word disguises, and you will find the article 10 Insane Disguises that actually worked. And that includes a page on uh, the whole rabbit's blood and cocaine scheme that we talked about today. You can do all that and a lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Lynda.com. You can learn it at Lynda.com, an online learning company with more than 77,000 video tutorials that teach software, creative, and business skills. Membership starts at $25 a month and provides unlimited 24-7 access to top-quality video courses taught by expert instructors with real-world experience. Listeners of Stuff You Missed in History Class can try Lynda.com free for seven days by visiting Lynda.com slash history stuff.